A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As some listeners may remember from the Forgotten Australia episode about my Titanic ancestor, in 2018, I was reunited with my biological family thanks to clues I found in electoral roll records on Ancestry.com.au. Since then, I've gone a step further, using Ancestry DNA to connect with a whole bunch of cousins and second cousins. I've met some of them recently, and it's really changed my world. Ancestry DNA helped me make other discoveries too, because it's shown that my genetic heritage is 58% Irish. The results took me even deeper than that, revealing my ancestors came from South Leitrim, West Cavan and bordering counties. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. Maybe you also have Irish heritage. In the lead up to this St. Patrick's Day, Ancestry is offering you the chance to delve into your background with Ancestry DNA at the special price of $89, saving you $40. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. This special offer is valid until the 17th of March 2024 and the price does not include shipping. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Elders past and present. This podcast episode is largely about addiction, and it also touches on suicide, mental illness and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Just before we start, a reminder about the first Forgotten Australia Book Club episode. I'll be interviewing Peter Doyle about his recent non-fiction release, Suburban Noir, which is a cracking portrait of crime and punishment in Sydney in the 1950s and 1960s. We'll also be talking about Peter's other books, the non-fiction Crooks Like Us and City of Shadows, and his four period crime novels, The Devil's Jump, Amaze Your Friends, Get Rich Quick, and The Big Whatever. There's a lot to talk about, and Peter would love to hear your questions about his work. So, if you'd like me to read them to him in the episode, send them as an email to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. But you can also record your question in a free audio file directly from your computer by going to speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Believe me, it's super easy. I've put the email address and that link into the show notes. So get your questions to me by the 27th of April and you'll hear them in the very first Forgotten Australia book club episode. Okay, on with the show. It's the first week of March 1884, and in dirty back alleys and in fine dining rooms, in public houses and in private clubs, tongues are wagging about the tragic final act in the comic dramatic life of Australia's own aristocratic but very alcoholic Lady Elizabeth Munro. The dreadful circumstances of her demise, found dead in a Brunswick waterhole, are contained in a report that's reprinted in a dozen or so different newspapers, from Melbourne to Brisbane, Ballarat to Launceston. This article tells readers that the beautiful Lady Munro 
bright as a tack and more schooled than most men, was a genuine, honest-to-God member of the English nobility. But many Australians already know her story from reading newspaper reports of her many, many appearances at court. That is, the sort of court that's presided over by a magistrate. Australians know she's Lady Munro, daughter of a Scottish baronet. Lady Munro, sister to the most scandalous noblewoman in all of England. Lady Munro, whose own sordid circumstances saw her flee to Australia. Lady Munro, who receives an enormous annual allowance to stay in the Antipodes. Lady Munro, who spends every available night with her true love, alcohol. Lady Munro, who spends many of her mornings in court accounting for the nights before. Lady Munro, who can afford all the alcohol in the world and who has all the time in the world in which to drink it. Or at least, she did, until, in her usual state, stumbling around in Brunswick, some brute or brutes attacked her, battered her, strangled her with her own petticoat and then dumped her body in a water-filled clay pit. Last she was seen, reports say, Lady Munro was drunk and following a procession of the Salvation Army. Given the sort of violent larrikins who shadow the tambourine thumpers, it's entirely possible she was picked off by some perverted member of the Skeleton Army. Or it could have been some villainous acquaintance who knew she received an allowance and killed her for her money. Either way, Lady Munro is no more. No doubt, around Australia, glasses are charged and the toast is raised. Long live Lady Munro! While she's gone, to those who knew her and knew of her and of the low company she kept, her death can't really come as much of a surprise. But one woman is surprised. And that's the woman herself. So we'll say it again. Long live Lady Munro. Lady Munro, who's not actually Lady Munro. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. You're listening to The Notorious Lady Munro, Part 1, The Woman in the Waterhole. The Notorious Lady Munro, Part 2, Drunk Around the Universe, and The Notorious Lady Munro, Part 3, A Most Remarkable Woman, will go on general release next week. But they're available now early and ad-free for Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. For about the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help me make this podcast. As a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, along with exclusive bonus shows, and of course, a show shout-out. So thanks very much for your recent support, Denise Thornton, Yasmin DePola, Terry Bull, Ian Fox, and Jade Mustard. If you'd like to become a supporter, Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. If you do use Apple, why not take advantage of the free three-day trial? This will give you access to parts two and three of this episode early and ad-free, as well as all the bonus episodes now available. You won't pay a cent so long as you cancel before it expires. To me, it's absolutely incredible that Lady Munro has been utterly forgotten, particularly in a country that loves larrikins who love a drink or 20. That could be because it's usually blokes on the booze who get held up as larrikin legends. We're talking Bob Hawke and his yard glass of beer and David Boone with his 52 cans on a flight to London. But Lady Munro deserves her place in this pantheon. 
She was both a blue-blooded gentlewoman of high society and an of-the-streets larrikiness. More seriously, Lady Munro endured a lot of hardships, just like Henry Lawson, during the very same period and in the same courts and jails, but she did so with remarkable song fra. And in terms of Australia's most well-known female eccentric, from her background of privilege to defying social conventions, from reciting poetry to terrorising taxi drivers, Lady Munro did it all more than half a century before the very celebrated B. Miles. B. Miles would claim she'd been convicted 300 times, but obituaries said it was less than that. Lady Munro had gone well over 300 halfway through her career, and she faced court not just in Sydney, but all over Australia and in New Zealand. There's no doubt about this, I've seen the newspaper reports. I was astounded to find I could follow her week to week, sometimes even day to day, by her court appearances. It's entirely possible that Lady Munro set a record that's never been equaled. Lady Munro's story overflows with drama, comedy and tragedy. It's shadowed with moments of suspense and horror, but it also sparkles with slapstick and farce that sometimes seem tailor-made to satirise the sexist, classist and colonialist male mindset of Australia at the end of the 1800s and at the beginning of the 20th century. The part of Lady Munro's story that I've been able to uncover stretches nearly 40 years. We're talking from the very same month that Ned Kelly became an outlaw legend by shooting police at Stringy Bark Creek, to the very month that we first commemorated our war dead with the first Anzac Day. So Lady Munro's story is also about incredible endurance. But beyond all of that, Lady Munro was and is a bundle of histories wrapped in mysteries. For all that I know about her, there's so much that I don't know. Thing is, with Lady Munro, I might not have it any other way. Lady Elizabeth Moncrief was born in 1853 in her family's grand country house in Perthshire, Scotland. Her father was Sir Thomas Moncrief, the seventh baronet. Elizabeth was one of his 16 children. She and her seven sisters were beautiful and well-polished and they would all marry well. Elizabeth became the wife of a gentleman soldier named Captain Munro. Her sister Georgina made a marriage that saw her become the Countess of Dudley. Sister Harriet, meanwhile, took as her husband the baronet and Member of Parliament Sir Charles Mordaunt. But in 1870, Harriet, known as Lady Mordaunt, became the Empire's most scarlet woman when her husband Sir Charles divorced her amid his very credible claim that she'd been committing adultery with the Prince of Wales. This was the forerunner to the sort of royal scandals that would become far more commonplace a hundred years later. It was the first time in history that the Prince of Wales had agreed to appear in open court. For the record, he denied the adultery. The wash-up was that Lady Mordaunt came out of the case, declared a lunatic, and she'd spend the rest of her life in asylums. Of course, the Prince of Wales would be crowned King Edward VII and he'd sow other seeds to become grandfather and great-grandfather to our own sometimes scandalous king and princes. As for Lady Mordaunt's sister, Elizabeth Moncrief, now Elizabeth Munro, 
Well, she had her own problems. She was too fond of a drink, and this would get her in trouble. Her father even had to cut down some of his timber to pay to keep her from appearing in the Old Bailey. Next, it was Elizabeth who became a scandalous woman when she ran off with her husband's brother, also an army captain, to live as man and wife in the Australian colony of Queensland. Then she doubled down by deserting him for the bottle. Now, strictly speaking, because her father was a baronet and not a duke, marquis or earl, Elizabeth wasn't entitled to the courtesy title of lady. But Queensland embraced her as Lady Munro anyway. And thus began Lady Munro's seemingly non-stop drunken tour of the southern colonies. She paid for it with an annual £200 allowance from England, this money arriving in quarterly £50 payments. As an idea of what that would then buy, in 1880 a pint of beer cost three pennies. So, if she wanted to knock back ten pints a day, she could do so and still have three quarters of her money left over. Reporters reveled in comically chronicling the latest intelligence on this lady on the lash, what she'd claimed to the police and magistrates, whether she had sufficient coin to pay her fine and continue her rampage, or whether her allowance was so exhausted she'd have to spend a week or more as a guest of Her Majesty. Most journalists seemed initially content to assume the authenticity of her aristocracy. Just by virtue of her haughty speech, refined manner and tailored outfits, it was clear she was no ordinary Antipodean inebriate. Whether you were a newspaper man or a magistrate, Lady Munro presented as your blue-blooded social superior. Eventually, though, a few writers reached for a copy of Debrett's book that listed the members of the peerage. This volume revealed a few rather inconvenient facts. Sir Thomas Moncrief was not Lady Munro's father. His eight daughters were all accounted for in England. So, who was this Lady Munro? They didn't know. And neither do I. What is possible is that she was Sir Thomas's illegitimate daughter, who'd been cared for and educated outside of his household and then packed off to Australia on an allowance. Of course, newspapers in the early 1880s would be extremely reluctant to print such speculation about Sir Thomas. The Bulletin would later report that the so-called Lady Munro was actually niece to Sir Thomas. Here's the thing. His brother, William Moncrief, had actually moved to Australia around 1855 and lived a quiet life as the clerk of Petty Sessions in Drayton, New South Wales. So, Elizabeth could have been his daughter, legitimate or illegitimate, or she might have come out to Australia in his care as a small child. In any case, I found no records that William Moncrief had children or that he was guardian to one. Then there was Sir Thomas's sister, who was named Elizabeth Moncrief. UK census records at ancestry.com.au show that she was unmarried in her 20s and 30s. She lived with her mother, who, after her father, the sixth baronet, died, had married the Earl of Bradford. So this Elizabeth Moncrief could have had a daughter out of wedlock. In any of these scenarios, Elizabeth could have been brought up knowing she was a Moncrief, even if it wasn't officially her surname. One thing we do know is that Our Lady Munro would claim her supposed husband was John Watson Munro, former captain with the 75th Regiment. 
She would also say that when she first came to the Antipodes, it had been to Wellington in New Zealand. But Lady Munro would say she'd left almost immediately aboard a ship called the Afghan. I thought I'd found confirmation of this when I encountered Professor James Park's autobiography written in the 1930s. This man was Scottish-born but became a famous New Zealand geologist. He wrote his book in the third person, and it opens with this. Professor Park was born in the year 1857 at Thainston Hall in the Valley of Don near Aberdeen. He landed at Wellington in 1874, accompanied by his sister Elizabeth, wife of Captain John Watson Munro of the 75th Regiment of Line, who almost immediately sailed for Gibraltar by way of Sydney to rejoin her husband. Finding this seemed like the aha moment, except that Professor Park's sister Elizabeth Park was not married to John Watson Munro, at least not as far as official records go. Elizabeth Park would marry a different man in the United Kingdom and have numerous children there, all while Our Lady Munro was making herself infamous in Australia. But John Watson Munro would settle in Brisbane. In December 1876, in Brisbane City Court, an Elizabeth Munro summoned a J.W. Munro for assault, and he was bound over on a £20 bond and two £10 sureties to keep the peace. Now, this is the only reference to an Elizabeth Munro in the Queensland newspapers in the 1870s. It would seem that whoever Lady Munro was, she was calling herself Elizabeth Munro at this time and claiming to be Captain Munro's wife. The story was that she would leave her husband around this time and embark on her drinking career soon after. The records show that John Watson Munro remained in Brisbane and married a woman in Armadale in 1882. Lady Munro would go on to demonstrate in court that she knew Captain Munro's military background well enough to say he'd been in the 75th foot. That, of course, isn't proof that they were in a relationship. But she also seemed to know that Professor Park's sister, the other Elizabeth Munro, who wasn't really Elizabeth Munro because she also wasn't married to John Watson Munro, had arrived and left Wellington in short order in 1874-75. In court, Our Lady Munro would say that she and Captain Munro were living apart by mutual agreement. This might have been to spare her the shame of admitting that she'd been living in sin and or committing adultery. Then, of course, there were whispers she'd actually been married to Captain Munro's brother first. He was also a captain. In some stories, this first captain died in India. In other stories, she left him and ran off with the second Captain Munro. Just to add to the complexity, John Watson Munro's one known brother, Andrew, who was a few years older, did emigrate to Australia. It seems he arrived in Brisbane in 1882, but ended up living in Warrnambool in Victoria. Like I say, Lady Munro is a bundle of histories wrapped in mysteries. What matters most for our purposes is that Elizabeth Munro, who sometimes also called herself Lucy, Harriet and Irene, inhabited the role of Lady Munro during almost all of her public life in Australia. Lady Munro really seemed to believe that she was Lady Munro. It was tempting to think that the drink had made her mad. But being convinced that you're a noble woman wouldn't somehow conjure 50 pounds a quarter from London. 
yet that money kept on coming year in, year out. This, along with how she presented herself and a few verifiable elements in her story, seemed enough for many in Australia to err on the side of caution. Journalists and editors most often used her title, even if sometimes in quotes or with a mocking tone. Clerks of the court would call her as Lady Munro. Even when a leading Australian barrister had her under oath and had plenty of motive to attack her ancestry, he didn't do so as a means of discrediting her evidence. A variation on Pascal's wager seemed to be at play here. Colonials might as well pay due deference because, God forbid, they should insult Lady Munro only for her to turn out to actually be nobility of some sort. So that's what I don't know about Lady Munro. Here's what I do know. Elizabeth Munro was an uncommon name in Australia in the late 19th century. There are just 19 references in articles found at Trove in newspapers from 1870 to 1879. Now, one of these references, as we've heard, was in Brisbane in December 1876, and it related to an assault charge against a J.W. Munro filed by Elizabeth Munro. So it's possible that Our Lady Munro at this point fled her abusive lover. Queensland's Truth newspaper would later say that Lady Munro had held court at this time in Brisbane's Cosmopolitan Hotel, where she would, quote, sit with a goodly array of deadbeats and chase the fleeting hours with generous long beers. Then, Truth lamented, Queensland had lost her to the southern colonies. In Sydney in October 1878, a woman named Elizabeth Munro was fined 40 shillings for using indecent language to a woman at a city hotel. It seems very likely that this was Our Lady Munro. That's because the first confirmed report that I've found, which does allude to her background, indicated she'd already achieved notoriety. This one appeared in the Armadale Express and New England General Advertiser on the 4th of July 1879. This item was reprinted from an unnamed newspaper, and it read, quote, Elizabeth Munro, a well-known character in Sydney and once of very respectable position, was before the Water Police Court recently for medical treatment. She was sent to the Lunatic Receiving House, Darlinghurst. Two months later, the Sydney Daily Telegraph reported, quote, The unfortunate woman, at one time the holder of a good position on the social scale, was back in the water court for riotous behaviour and was remanded for a week for medical treatment. But when Elizabeth was brought back before the magistrate four days later, he simply discharged her without even referencing the criminal charge. This might have been the sort of deference you'd show to a now sober woman who was comporting herself like a true member of the nobility. Even so, the title, Lady Munro, hadn't yet entered the reports. In the 1880s newspapers available at Trove, there are 76 references to Elizabeth Munro, and almost all of them can be confirmed as our woman. And Elizabeth Munro popped up in Melbourne on the 5th of April, 1880. She was appearing in Fitzroy Court on drunkenness and was fined 10 shillings in lieu of which she'd serve 48 hours. There were more such appearances including one in October that year where she answered a charge of insulting behaviour. Again, the case for this being our Elizabeth Munro is strengthened by the Fitzroy Mercury and Weekly Courier reporting, quote, 
She was in a frolicsome mood on Tuesday, dancing and singing on the footpath in Webb Street, crowned with a masculine hat. Song, dance and bold stylistic choices would all be a staple of Lady Munro's appearances. On this occasion, the Fitzroy bench discharged her. She took off north. Lady Munro would always have money and she would always travel. Up in Sydney at this time, Constable James McVane, who joined the police force in 1876, was walking the beat in the mean streets of Woolloomooloo. It was here he'd encounter Elizabeth Munro, a quote, fine-looking woman, and he was to see a lot more of her in the years ahead. Decades later, he'd recall, quote, I first met her about two o'clock in the morning, coming through the domain with two men. She was swinging on their arms and laughing loudly. Lady Munro went off with one of these fellows, and this caused his mate to worry. This man told Constable McVane they'd met the woman at a coffee stall in Pitt Street. She'd told them she'd arrived late by steamer from Brisbane, and they'd tried but failed to get her lodgings at the Domain Hotel. This bloke told the constable, She is rather tipsy and is wearing a lot of jewellery. My mate is down there with her. I wish she would go and hunt him away for fear he gets into trouble. Constable McVane gallantly went to save this man from the beautiful young woman who'd had a few too many drinks and was draped in jewellery. But he couldn't find them. Turned out she'd gotten lodgings in a hotel in Woolloomooloo Street. Constable McVane knew this because he saw her the next morning at the same time. She was sitting on her steamer trunks underneath the hotel's awning, having been turfed out because she'd come back too late and too drunk. McVane recalled, quote, so she sat on her boxes all night and got lodgings at another hotel where they were not so particular. But during that evening, she'd had a bit of trouble. He wrote, During the night, some larrikins annoyed her and the constable on the beat foolishly lent her his whistle so she could summon him if she was again molested. She stuck to the whistle and caused a sensation blowing it the following night in King Street. The evening news on the 27th of October 1882 appeared to record this particular sloshed skylark in a story that also seems to be the first reference to her as Lady Munro. Yet it was also clear she was already known this way by then. Quote, Elizabeth, better known as Lady Munro, aged 29 and fashionably dressed, carrying a parasol and reticule, was brought up today before Mr. Clark at the Central Police Court, charged with being drunk. If correct, this puts her birth year as 1853. The paper noted she'd been the reverse of ladylike in King Street the night before, had been arrested and tossed in a cell. But in court she was sober and she was aristocratic. Quote, When in the dock this morning, she looked around with contempt upon some of the other prisoners and complained of being in bad company. And so far as dress was concerned, there was a marked contrast between their rags and squalor and her finery and silk. The Evening News wryly commented the magistrate had given Lady Munro the immediate opportunity to escape her low companionship. All she had to do was pay a 20-shilling fine. Quote, But as her ladyship was not possessed of the necessary coin, she went up again for seven days. The article noted it was her second such conviction recently in Sydney. Strike three came just three weeks later, after Lady Munro was arrested for tying one on and getting riotous in College Street. This time, she was convicted as a habitual drunkard and sentenced to one month. 
Lady Munro's hold on the colonial press had begun. It wasn't hard to see why, given the newspapers were dominated by men predisposed to think of the English lady as the epitome of grace and desirability. A writer who knew Lady Munro in these early days would describe her thus. She is rather above the middle height, has a soft musical voice, polished and correct in tone. A well-formed, erect, flexible figure, more pliant when lubricated with alcohol, and a face, handsome if not beautiful. Another writer would describe her as a dashing creature who evidenced her extraction even in her then budding indifference to conventionality. Lady Munro's background, despite or perhaps because of its very impenetrability, was also surely alluring. Policeman McVeigh would later write, There was a good deal of mystery attached to her, and very few knew her real history. I have often questioned her on the subject of her antecedents, but always got equivocal answers. Lady Munro was undoubtedly addicted to alcohol. Whether she was suffering other mental issues is not clear. Certainly some magistrates believed she needed assessment as a lunatic. But this could also be the fate of a woman who didn't conform to societal expectations. In January 1883, not long released from her month in jail, Lady Munro had a newsworthy medical emergency. The Australian Town and Country Journal reported, quote, Lady Munro, who at one time moved in the very highest circles of fashion in an adjoining colony, and who is closely related to a peer of the realm, but whose acquaintance with courts for the last few years has been that of police courts, on Monday went to the hospital and stated that she had taken a dose of arsenic. Other newspaper reports said she hadn't actually exhibited any signs of poisoning. So perhaps this was a suicide attempt, perhaps it was a plea for help, but it may also have been an accident or a way of getting a bed, food and medical attention. The Australian Town and Country Journal wasn't concerned so much as resigned. Quote, she was given an emetic and afterwards went on her way rejoicing, probably to the nearest hotel, for Lady Munro has served so many terms for drunkenness that she has now been given up as incorrigible. The bulletin chimed in to say that after she left the hospital that day, a quote, discussion arose between the convalescent patients as to how long her ladyship had quitted the patrician sphere and turned herself into a brewery. Lady Munro was to become one of the bulletin's stable of colourful characters, with the publication enjoying checking and mocking other notorious types, including Victorian hangman Elijah Upjohn, who'd necked Ned Kelly and since behaved like he was some sort of VIP on the streets of Melbourne. Later that year, August 1883, when she was again in court in Sydney, the evening news would provide a more fulsome portrait of Lady Munro. Quote, It is said this unfortunate woman at one time used to move in the very height of fashionable circles, that she is the daughter of a Scottish baronet, the wife of an officer high in the English army, and a woman who, in her time, and that time can be recollected in Sydney, has been full of grace and beauty. She has, however, through drink, sunk so low that she spends much of her time in jail, and is, when at liberty, among the most abandoned characters in Sydney. She receives a monthly remittance from home, enough to keep her comfortably in respectability, with which she has a periodical carouse. She has been pronounced perfectly incurable. Versions of this article appeared in various newspapers all over the colonies. 
That month, the Bulletin also put more corpuscles into the family bloodline by reporting, quote, It is said that Lady Munro, the most noted harridan of the Central Court and an incurable drunkard, is sister to two beautiful members of the British aristocracy, Lady Mordaunt and to the Countess of Dudley. She is alleged to be the widow of Major Munro and daughter of Sir Thomas Moncrief, Baronet. Via these reports, Lady Munro was well established as a personality, and it's reasonable to assume she evoked the same mixture of emotions that controversial celebrities do to this day, particularly when they're women, from admiration and envy to contempt and pity, often generated by gossipy articles that combined ridicule with rectitude. On Sunday the 10th of February 1884, Lady Munro was to be found wandering a Sydney street drunk with a borrowed live chicken in hand, calling out for someone to cook the chook for her. That was a new comic wrinkle. Then, on Tuesday the 26th of February, a more ordinary occurrence. She was in court and fined 20 shillings for riotous behaviour on William Street. But what made this extraordinary was that just hours later, she was in Brunswick in Melbourne, being strangled and dumped in a waterhole. Or so Australia would soon come to believe, in a story that guaranteed her colonial celebrity. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Given how much uncertainty surrounds Lady Munro, it's fitting that the story that brought her the most early attention came as the result of an utterly perplexing mystery that confounded one magistrate, four medical men, 14 jurors and countless newspaper editors and writers all over Australia. On the afternoon of Friday the 29th of February 1884, 13-year-old lad John Shortus was walking along Phoenix Street in Brunswick. For decades now, the suburb had been the brickyard capital of Victoria, its seemingly infinite clay pits yielding the raw stuff that was making Melbourne marvellous. Bricks for buildings, pipes for sewerage, ceramics for house and garden. Alfred Cornwall was one of the pioneers, starting his small Brunswick works in 1858, having since expanded to cover seven or eight acres, with half of that area pitted to depths of 50 feet. Alfred Cornwall's clay was hauled in trucks up steep conveyors to his bellowing pipe-making machines. These, along with the drying furnaces and other departments, belched smoke into the sky hanging over the cratered landscape of Brunswick. As big as the brick-making business was, it was soon to be given a boost because the Northern Railway was then being built through Brunswick. And this was going to make the distribution of heavy products far easier than by using horse drays. 
As a young lad, John Shortus was surely excited that he'd soon see locomotives and their trains steam through his suburb. But if the railway had come sooner, well, he might still have a father. In February 1875, when John had been just three years old, his dad, also named John, was driving drays loaded with bricks on Sydney Road near Flemington Road. John Senior had slipped, a horse had bolted, he'd fallen under the wheels, and his head had been crushed. Nine years later, almost to the day, and just 20 feet from the new railway line, John Jr. walked by Alfred Cornwall's property on Phoenix Street, and he looked over at a water-filled clay pit. A couple of days ago, he and some schoolmates had seen what they thought was a bundle of rags floating there. But now John saw the thing had shifted. He was looking at a dead body. Pluckily going up to the pit edge, he used a stick with a nail in it to snag the woman's dress and drag the corpse to the bank. Then John went for the police. A couple of Brunswick constables examined the body. They thought the dead woman was about 22 years of age. She wore a red print dress, three petticoats, a pair of dark woolen stockings and a pair of odd kid boots. There were seemingly unmistakable signs of foul play. As Melbourne's The Herald reported, quote, The cause of death is believed to be suffocation, one of the woman's cotton petticoats having been drawn up and twisted around her throat. There were other indications it might have been murder. Quote, Several marks of violence were found on the body, one on the left cheek, which seems to have been caused by a blow from a fist or some blunt instrument. There is also a bruise on the right cheek near the throat. The mark on the right cheek seems to have been caused by the woman being roughly dragged along the ground by the petticoat after death and the body placed in the hole where found. The report said it was, quote, almost impossible for her to have killed herself. If she'd meant to drown herself, why put the petticoat around her throat? Besides, it had been tightened from the back of the neck rather than under the chin as a suicidal person would be likely to do. The Herald told readers, quote, The appearance of the body shown that it had been in the water for about a week. While it was reported that her body wasn't too badly decomposed, it was said that above where the petticoat had been tightened, her neck and head were swollen and were red, black and green. The dead woman was taken to the coach house of the Cumberland Arms Hotel, which still stands on Sydney Road in Brunswick. There, on Saturday morning, the post-mortem was undertaken by Drs Murphy and McKenna, both of them reputable men who'd done these sorts of examinations previously. The medicos concluded that the cause of death was strangulation, and it had taken place before the body went into the water. They said she couldn't have done it to herself. The doctors also found, quote, There was a punctured wound over the right temple, extending to the skull. This had been inflicted before death. The body had not been in the water 48 hours. The doctors said there was no doubt. The woman had been murdered. An inquest was opened at the Cumberland Arms on that Saturday at 3.30 in the afternoon. But given what the doctors had said, the coroner then adjourned it to Monday to give Sub-Inspector Brown and Detective Considine time to make further inquiries. The coroner already had two medical opinions, but given they'd said murder, he wanted two more. So he requested the attendance of Professor Harry Brooks Allen, who was a lecturer in pathology and anatomy at Melbourne University, and Dr. James Neild, 
who lectured there in forensic medicine and who was sometime editor of the Australian Medical Journal. In the meantime, well-known photographer Mr D Edelston, who had portrait studios in Collins and Burke Streets, was contracted by the police to go to the coach house and make a picture that could be used in attempts to identify the woman. But to get an accurate likeness, Mr Edelston needed the body propped upright. When it was, and Detective Considine saw her from this new angle, he at once recognised the deceased as a woman who was a well-known offender. Oh, it's Mother Munro, he said. William Considine had been with the police in Victoria since 1871, and he'd been a detective since 1875. Detective Considine knew who he was talking about. Perhaps newspaper reporters did also. But all but one of them wouldn't at first go any further than reporting that the dead woman was Mother Munro, well known to the detective. If they'd cared to write more but didn't know the facts, her story was available in their back issues. Mother Munro was Anne Munro, a brothel keeper who'd usually operated in Fitzroy and who'd racked up several convictions since 1876. She had a sordid reputation for depraved parties and for turning out used-up young girls onto the streets, consigning them to dreadful fates that supposedly saw some of their number end up dead in the Yarra River. So perhaps Mother Munro ending up dumped in the water was karmic comeuppance. While this might have made a good newspaper angle, ignorance would instead rush in to fill the vacuum. More of that in a moment. On the weekend that the body was found, Brunswick was buzzing. This was the third mysterious murder in Victoria in the past six weeks. Not that the killings were related, but still, it was scary. Witnesses came forward to say they'd seen the woman very drunk and following a Salvation Army procession. One person said it had been on Monday night. Another said it was on Wednesday evening. Given Skeleton Army attacks were then at their worst in Melbourne and in country Victoria, it was theorised that the woman might well have been killed by such a larrikin or larrikins. People wanted answers, and crowds congregated around the Cumberland Arms Hotel. Anticipating the Pyjama Girl mystery 50 years later up at Albury, hundreds would view the woman's decomposing remains. While Detective Considine said there was no doubt this was Mother Munro, ordinary punters weren't so sure. These people also lived and breathed these streets, and none of them identified her. They reckoned she must have been from out of town. On Sunday morning, Inspector Kennedy, Sub-Inspector Brown, Detective Considine and two Indigenous trackers made a further examination of the clay hole and surroundings. The trackers said the woman's footprints showed she'd slipped. Holes in the ground and mud in one of her hands indicated she'd tried to pull herself out of the waterhole but had become exhausted and drowned. Also on Sunday, the second post-mortem was conducted by Professor Allen and Dr. Neild. Doctors Murphy and McKenna watched on. Neither the conclusions of the trackers or the results of the second post-mortem would be made public until the inquest resumed at 10am on Monday. But before then, Mother Munro became Lady Munro. It happened like this. 
On Monday morning, a reporter sent his article via the Telegraph to the Launceston Examiner. They ran it with the headline, One More Unfortunate, referencing the sudden spate of murders. Their piece began, quote, Our news by Telegraph from Melbourne today states that the body of a woman recently found dead in a waterhole has been recognised as that of Mother Munro, known in Queensland as Lady Munro. This unfortunate woman was a sister of the well-known Lady Mordaunt. How the reporter came up with this isn't known. He might simply have assumed that Mother and Lady Munro were one and the same, or he might have been told this by the police. The Launceston Examiner article set out Lady Munro's background as it was then understood, including her frequent court appearances in Sydney and Melbourne. It concluded she'd likely been murdered by villains after her money, the money she got regularly as an allowance from home. The Launceston Examiner article was picked up by newspapers in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. People everywhere learned that Lady Munro was dead, that she'd been murdered. On the Monday morning, a jury of 14 men got their turn to see the body at the Cumberland Arms Hotel before the inquest continued at the Brunswick Town Hall. There, they heard from young John Shortus about finding the woman dead. Police Constable Thomas Burke testified about removing her to the hotel. He said the petticoat was twisted around her neck with three or four folds and it had been pulled tight but wasn't knotted. He said she had a swollen and blackened left eye. Mounted Constable Kirkham, who was in charge of the Indigenous trackers Moses and Johnny, said they'd gone to the waterhole on Sunday. The Aboriginal men had said there was only one set of tracks. No one had thrown her in. She'd slipped and drowned. A witness named John Lyons said on Tuesday night he'd seen her from an upstairs window, staggering along a Brunswick street, and he'd seen her step into a doorway, take off her petticoat, roll it up, and then hurry away. She'd seemed quite intoxicated. A man named Henry Strickland said he'd seen her passing the Sarah Sands Hotel. The woman had been drunk, she'd had a black eye, and she'd had her petticoat over one arm. Witness John Simpson deposed that he lived just 10 yards from the waterhole. The Argus reported, quote, on Tuesday night, he heard a heavy splash in the water. He did not get up, heard no talking or disturbance of any kind. The splash was a very heavy one, as if something was thrown into the water. A child could have gotten out of the hole, as the depth was only two feet where the body was found. If she'd fallen in, why hadn't she gotten out? True, the woman might have hit her head and been unconscious, yet this would have meant the trackers had been wrong about her trying to climb free. But other witnesses, including one who'd seen her inside a hotel and those who'd said they'd seen her following the Salvation Army, were not called to give evidence. This was lost in the controversy that followed when the medical men reported their findings to the inquest. Dr. Neal deposed of his and Professor Allen's examination, quote, Deceased appeared to be a woman of the town, and from the condition of the mucous membranes of the stomach, I think she had been drinking. The dead woman's head and neck were much swollen. There was mud on the hands and wrists, a bruise on her right knee and contusions below, and she'd bitten her tongue. Dr. Neild said, quote, I feel sure the petticoat had nothing to do with it. Not being tired, the pressure would relax. 
it had not acted as a ligature around the neck. There were, the doctor said, no marks on the neck to indicate she'd been strangled. But he allowed it was possible, but very improbable, that she might have twisted around her throat from the front and then turned these twists to the back of the neck before getting into the water. And that might, might have caused her to become insensible. As for the other major injury, quote, The wound on the top of the head appeared to have been made by a nail in the pole I was shown that was used to take the body out of the water. Dr. Neal said she had not been strangled or beaten. Quote, The lungs were congested and the cause of death was suffocation from drowning, pure and simple. As for how she'd come to be in the water, Dr. Neal testified there was no evidence, but he'd also seen no indication of any struggle. He said she'd been in the water for two to three days, and this meant she'd died on Tuesday or Wednesday night. Professor Allen concurred. The deceased had died from drowning, not strangulation. The Argus reported, The presence of the well-known goose skin confirmed him in his opinion that the woman was alive when she entered the water. Doctors Murphy and McKenna testified next, and they disagreed entirely. Dr. Murphy told the jury that on removing the petticoat, he'd found that it was tied tightly and that there was a distinct black mark around the neck caused by extreme pressure. Internally, on cutting into the neck, he found all the muscles congested and dark, that is, badly bruised, but only where the petticoat had been tightened. Dr. Murphy said the wound on the skull was fractured and he believed it had been made by a penknife or similar before death. Further, he didn't consider goose skin as being decisive evidence of drowning. Supporting this conclusion, there was no froth or mucus in the mouth, nostrils, trachea, and there was no water in the stomach. Dr. Murphy said it was possible the woman might have strangled herself, but it was not very probable at all. Testifying, Dr. McKenna concurred with his colleague. In terms of medical experts, it was two against two. Who was right? That would be for the jury of 14 men, all of them untrained, to decide. I'm no expert, but unlike that jury, I do have access to the internet and the past 140 years of forensic observations. Not that they settle the matter. As for the goose skin, Dr. Murphy was right. It can occur post-mortem, during rigor mortis, particularly if the body's in cold conditions. But he wasn't necessarily right about the bruises. Bruise-like marks can also occur after death, meaning the marks under the petticoat on her neck didn't necessarily prove strangulation. However, the absence of water in her stomach was intriguing. When conscious and unconscious people start to drown and water hits the trachea, laryngospasm occurs and this is where the vocal cords constrict and seal off the lungs. That means at first, water only enters the stomach. In about 1 in 10 people, the seal remains until death is caused by heart attack. These are called dry drownings. There's no water in the lungs. But in the other 9 out of 10 people, the vocal cords relax after some time and water is inhaled into the lungs. Point being, an absence of water in the stomach would seem to indicate that she'd been dead before she hit the water. Same goes for the absence of froth. 
Large amounts of this are usually found in the respiratory tract of freshly drowned people. But then again, after two or three days in the mucky clay pit water, this froth could have degraded. Even today, with everything we know, it can be extremely difficult to definitively establish drowning as a cause of death in cases similar to the body in the waterhole. At the town hall inquest on the 3rd of March 1884, the coroner had to find a way to reconcile perfectly contradictory medical testimonies. But he also had to do this without giving offence to any of the gentlemen. As the age reported, he was in a position where it was necessary to appear to have a definite opinion. To express a definite opinion, however, was to decide in favour of two of the medical men against the other two. From a professional point of view, this would be exceedingly bad form. The age reported that he recommended to the jury, quote, to take the evidence of the most experienced practitioners, namely Dr. Allen and Dr. Neild. But at the same time, he did not for one moment mean to say that the evidence of the other gentlemen be thrown on one side. Yet to help them along, the coroner's thumb slipped onto the scales of justice. He pointed out to the jury that no one knew anything about the woman. No evidence had been produced to show whether she'd been with anyone or that any violence had been committed upon her. He said that the evidence did not appear to fit with death by strangulation, either before or after she got into the water, and that she might very well have gone into the clay pit of her own volition. Other than that, it was left to the jury. Fourteen untrained men to decide which medical expertise was the most medically expert. It took them 20 minutes. They came back with the verdict that the woman had drowned. But they said there wasn't sufficient evidence to say how she'd ended up in the water. So it was possibly an accident, possibly a suicide, and possibly a murder. Given this non-decision decision, the police had no reason to continue investigating. The case was closed. Newspaper commentators weren't pleased. The Mount Alexander Mail said it was, quote, highly unsatisfactory to be once more reminded that skilled evidence may be so conflicting and unreliable in the affairs of the gravest concern as to be absolutely useless for every practical purpose. Melbourne's weekly, The Advocate, called the verdict decidedly unsatisfactory. In this newspaper's detailed criticism at the end of that week, it also leaned in to Lady Munro in the leading role. Quote, There is no occasion to allude at length to any of the rumours that have been afloat with regard to the woman's identity or her previous career. But of course, that was exactly what it was going to do. The advocate continued, It may be true that she was the degenerate scion of a good family, fallen from a higher state into habits of debauchery and degradation. Or it may not. But whatever may have been her former rank in life, the circumstances surrounding her death are certainly suspicious and the finding of the jury at the inquest eminently unsatisfactory. The advocate said that even if she did drown, people still wanted to know what had happened. Quote, Did she, in a moment of half-drunken, half-hysterical excitement caused by the singing of the Salvation Army, stated to have been passing by when she was last seen alive, first try to strangle herself and then, in the same frenzied condition, fling herself into the water? Or, and the theory is by no means improbable or far-fetched, was she robbed and then murdered by others? 
This theory, the advocate said, was strengthened by the Lady Munro angle. Quote, According to one of the reported accounts of the affair, she was recognised by a detective as a person who was known to be in the receipt of a regularly paid pension from England, and who was also known to be in the habit of knocking down the said pension with disreputable characters. One of these disreputable characters, the advocate said, might have killed her, though it said it'd be a silly thing for a villain to do, killing the goose that laid the golden egg and all that. In any case, the advocate argued, Melbourne should not just wash its hands of this affair. Quote, All the community want to know is how she died, and until that is known, they will certainly not be satisfied. To do this, quote, A further inquiry into the woman's identity would be the best means of elucidating this portion of the mystery, and without it, we scarcely see how a failure of justice can be avoided. It was actually a fairly reasonable request. So, how was it determined that the dead woman wasn't Lady Munro? Well, of course, the story went that Lady Munro, hearing she was dead, made a beeline for the inquest. A later writer would claim, quote, The old form darkened the doorway, and a woman's voice cheerfully exclaimed, Good day, gentlemen all. I thought I'd like to be present at my own inquest. And there stood Lady Munro. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Lady Munro was in Sydney when the body was found, and she wasn't linked to it in the press there until after the inquest was over. Even so, within the next few days, the dead woman did turn up very much alive in Melbourne. The Weekly Times on the 15th of March reported of, in the past week, quote, Mrs. Munro having appeared in the flesh since the fatal occurrence. This was almost certainly Anne Munro, a.k.a. Mother Munro, although Lady Munro could feasibly have arrived by steamer in this time frame. Regardless, even before this embarrassment made that newspaper, the inadequacy of the police investigation had been revealed. Detective William Considine had been wrong after all. When the police had had the dead woman's clothes washed, it had revealed a name on one of her petticoats, T. Wade. Now it was confirmed that she'd been Teresa Wade, a domestic servant who'd recently been dismissed from her job for drunkenness. Senior Constable Brown of Brunswick had made this breakthrough. He'd further confirmed the unfortunate woman was a widow, who'd once kept the Governor Burke Hotel in the city as well as other licensed premises. She'd last been seen drunk on the 25th of February at Hotham, which was what North Melbourne was then called. The Geelong Advertiser reported of this latest development, quote, Persons in the neighbourhood of the clay hole where the woman was, perhaps, murdered, say that on Tuesday night, when the splash was heard, a woman's voice was distinctly heard calling, Murder! and Help! But, the paper reported, they hadn't taken any notice because a woman nuisance lived in the area and she was in the habit of causing a disturbance and yelling out all sorts of things. Except, quote, at this date, the woman was a prisoner in jail, so the cries could not have been from her. Reports of someone calling out murder had not been heard at the inquest. The man who lived close to the waterhole said he'd heard no one call out at all. Now, from information in the news reports, I used Ancestry.com.au and Trove to establish that Teresa Wade was almost certainly the Theresa Wade who was born in Geelong in 1854. 
She first appeared in the newspapers when she was in court at the age of 14, testifying in her merchant father William's bizarre divorce case. Six years later, Teresa would testify again on his behalf in his fraudulent insolvency case. Four years on from that, in December 1877, now aged 23, Teresa took up the license of the Corio Hotel. She was stated to be a spinster. Then, in November 1878, she took over the Liverpool Family Hotel in Melbourne's Burke Street East. Senior Constable Brown's intel about her running the Governor Burke Hotel appeared incorrect. That venue was licensed by Thomas Wade, but he was no relation. Teresa Wade was insolvent by February of 1880, saddled with high rent and bad debts. Newspapers reported she owed £305 and had just 10 shillings in assets. Teresa Wade was discharged from her debts in August of 1880. After that, the record's silent until the 11th of March 1884 when the Herald identified her as the woman in the waterhole. The next day, the paper reported that several people had since come forward, quote, establishing beyond all doubt the identity of the deceased. A Mr. Gibbons of Hotham told police that Teresa had been in his service some months ago, but he'd had to let her go on account of her drunkenness. A Mr. Shea said she'd been staying with him and he'd last seen her drunk on the 25th of February. By this stage, of course, the witnesses were identifying her from that photo of the decomposed corpse. The decomposed corpse that Detective Considine had misidentified after seeing it up close and in person. Who knows, maybe these witnesses were right. A lady residing in Russell Street told the police that Teresa Wade was, quote, well-connected in Dublin and was a person of superior education, but was addicted to drinking to excess. This lady witness was almost certainly wrong. Like Elizabeth Munro, Teresa Wade was not a common name. Apart from the woman who'd been born in Geelong, the only other newspaper reference to a Teresa Wade in Victoria during this period was in a family notice in 1877. It advised of the death of a man named Michael Doyle in Ireland. The notice sought Teresa Wade because her unmarried name was Teresa Doyle. She was a relation to the deceased. The notice had been placed because it was believed that she and her husband, Joseph Wade, might have been in Australia or in America. This was a different Teresa Wade, and very likely the Irish woman encountered years earlier by the Russell Street Lady Witness. But we do find another Teresa Wade in Melbourne in 1891 in rate books found at Ancestry.com.au. Teresa Wade is listed at 6 Gertrude Street, and as earning her income from boarders. At this time, that address was in the news in an expensive divorce case, the adultery said to have taken place on these premises. It was also used as the address for a quack doctor peddling cures. Now, Teresa Wade was still there in 1896. In the 1920s, Teresa Wade's electoral role at Ancestry has her living at 115 Fitzroy Street and giving her occupation simply as home duties. This Teresa Wade died on the 16th of June, 1929, at the age of 75. The Argus listed her estate as comprising £11.09. shillings. Her Victorian death record states she was born in 1854 and that her father was William Wade. 
This makes it highly probable, bordering on certain, that this was the same Theresa Wade who was said to have died in Brunswick in 1884. If this is correct, then how did the corpse come to be wearing a petticoat with T. Wade on it? Well, it could have been stolen, or it could have been sold to buy drink. Such thefts and transactions regarding clothes were common when they had more value. If I'm right, why didn't Theresa Wade come forward to set the record straight back in 1884? Thing is, she might have, only for the police to send her on her way. The last thing they would have wanted right then would be to have to admit they'd been wrong yet again. Who was the woman in the waterhole? We'll never know. What was known, definitely, definitely, from the 11th of March 1884, was that the woman in the waterhole was not Lady Munro. Even so, her death remained a fact for many Australians who weren't paying close attention to the smaller follow-up articles in a few Melbourne newspapers. It even evaded the bulletin for a time, and they mourned her with a Shakespearean flourish. Quote, Lady Munro is dead. Like the gentle Ophelia, she had too much of water, the magazine lamented. Quote, At one time, she was an exceedingly handsome woman, highly accomplished and of active, brilliant intellect. This was her character, however, before we chanced to know her. When we saw her, she was driving down Pitt Street in a carriage drawn by a pair of high-stepping greys. But when we saw her last, a member of the force, with sorrow stamped on his soul, was vainly endeavouring to push her up to the Darlinghurst station on a borrowed fruit truck. Lady Munro's death had been reported first on the 3rd of March, and it was about a month before Australian newspaper men woke up to their mistake. They only really did so because by then Lady Munro had returned to Melbourne, and if she didn't already know she was supposed to be dead, her old friends had filled her in and made jokes about her resurrection. Lady Munro might have laughed along, especially if she'd had a few. But she reacted less well to larrikins calling her the dead woman when she was out in Melbourne on Wednesday the 9th of April 1884. She was arrested for insulting behaviour, having supposedly gone wild on these lads who were hassling her. Lady Munro was back from the dead and back in court the next day to be fined 20 shillings or 14 days in jail. Lady Munro's return to the land of the living was received rapturously. Sydney's The Daily Telegraph blamed the mix-up on Melbourne's PC plods misidentifying Lady Munro, and then it mocked the Victorian columnists for, quote, making her a text from which to preach warning sermons to virtuous maidens. The Telegraph continued, Thereupon, every newspaper from the Murray to the sea had a paragraph equally compounded of piety and pruriency. For, whilst pointing a moral from a woman of high estate falling to so low a level of degradation and ending her career so miserably, care was also taken to introduce some spicy details of her sinful and disorderly life. The Daily Telegraph, in criticising other newspapers' inaccuracies, itself accepted her aristocratic lineage uncritically, while also saying the woman in the waterhole had proved to be a ordinary washerwoman. Queensland's Figaro newspaper on the 26th of April ran the headline, Is She Dead? 
Trying to look past the egg on its face, it asked, Now the question is, what are we to believe? Was the woman who was found murdered by the waterhole Mrs. Munro or not? Is the unfortunate sister of Lady Mordaunt dead? The answer was no. The bulletin didn't care that it had also been taken in. For comic purposes, it relocated her death to a ditch behind the Carlton Brewery as it rejoiced in her resurrection and printed its own satiric critique of the reactions that her passing had elicited. Its mock tribute began, quote, There went forth over the world a wail of grief, and we wailed with the rest. This column did question the veracity of her lineage before dismissing such qualms as inconsequential. What really mattered, it said, was the heartbreak that had greeted the news of her demise. Quote, There was hardly a rag in the country whose bard did not trickle forth his little stream of poetry. The bulletin said there'd been hundreds such verses printed, and it included a few fictitious examples from a few fictitious newspapers. One of them went, Who is that stiff, stark we see, stretched out behind a brewery? Oh horror, is it so? Her eyebrow shows a patch of mud. Her heart has ceased its gentle thud. It is, alas, Munro. Not many people get to read newspaper reports about their own deaths. Lady Munro had done it once, and before her time was really done, she'd do it again. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the three-part episode, The Notorious Lady Munro. Part two and part three are available now ad-free for Apple and Patreon supporters. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting.